0: I want to encourage you tonight to turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26. In our study of the book of Exodus, we've come to that portion of Exodus that if you try to read late at night or early in the morning, you will probably fall asleep. All right, any, any of you ever done that before reading some of these portions of Exodus? This is for us in the you know modern 21st century thinking about and, and reflecting on these ancient religious rituals in Israel, and especially when you start measuring cubits and curtains and and how long they are and sewing them together, and it, if we're not focused, if we're not trying to see what the message of the text is, we can we can get lost and we can start to lose attention to the text. But what's amazing about this is that not only does he tell us here how the tabernacle is to be built, but then you go in the last part of Exodus and you see almost the exact same thing repeated word for word again in the actual doing of it. So you have, this is how it should be done, several chapters explaining how these things should be done, and then several chapters again saying that's exactly how they did it. And you think, why why all that repetition? Why so much of Exodus spent on the tabernacle and its furnishings? And one answer is it shows you just how important this is to the Lord and to the worship of his people. That, that he would have Moses devote this much time to this in this portion of Scripture shows us the importance of the tabernacle and the furnishings in it, and particularly what happened there in that tabernacle. shows us how important it is that God dwelt among his people, that his presence was there, and that in the very place where his presence was located, that is the place also where the blood of atonement was applied where God could then meet with a sinful people because their sins had been atoned for. And so these are very significant passages of Scripture because of the, just the amount of time that is devoted to them. But if we're not careful, we can quickly just pass over them and not think about the, the significance of what they're trying to teach us. What I'm going to do tonight is something a little bit different than my usual pattern. Usually I like to read all the way through the text that we're looking at and then have a word of prayer and then begin to explain it. But just the length of the passage tonight, I think what I'll do is as I read it, I'll make some comments along the way, just some explanatory comments, help us understand, make sure we understand the meaning of what, what we're reading. And then at the end, I'll try to... Bring together just a few points to help us see the theological significance of of what this passage is teaching us. And so tonight we're going to read Exodus chapter 26. And this is while Moses is on the mountain, and the Lord is giving him these instructions. And so the Lord says to Moses, Make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. just a couple of things to comment there. One is, this is a tabernacle, which is another way of saying this is a tent. And it's helpful for us to remember that this is a tent, because this is designed to be a portable structure. This is designed to be a, a central place of worship where God's presence is located, but it was also designed to be moved from place to place. And so sometimes in some of the artists' renderings of the tabernacle that are based on this passage, it almost looks like the tabernacle is more like a building, the way that they have rendered it. But the tabernacle was not a building. It was a tent. And it was constructed like a tent and it was designed to be lightweight, foldable, to be carried and moved from place to place. And also you can see right away in verse number one, just the incredible care and expense and the intricate detail that is to go into the building of the tabernacle. So you have 10 curtains of finely twisted linen. So, this is not just ordinary cloth. This is very tightly woven, dense, uh, rich, durable linen. And it is made of expensive linen that has been dyed in inexpensive colors, purple and red and, and scarlet. And so this communicates just the how important this was. And what's interesting is is that the the closer that you get to the the central place of God's presence, the closer you get to the Ark of the Covenant, the more precious, the more costly, the more beautiful the materials that were used in the making of it. So you have gold with the Ark of the Covenant. And then surrounding it, this, this place, this tent, you had the richest of tapestries the most beautiful and expensive and and ornate of tapestries to surround it. And it was to have woven into it a design. So this is very highly skilled craftsmanship that is going into this. And into the fabric itself is to be woven images of cherubim. And we saw a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the Ark of the Covenant that cherubim are very significant. These are essentially two angels above the Ark of the Covenant that overshadow the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And in that very place is where the glory of God was to dwell. And we mentioned then that probably the significance of the cherubim, and you see it with the Ark of the Covenant, but you also see it in different places embroidered into the artwork itself in the tabernacle, these cherubim. And I think this is to signify that this tent on earth is intended to be an earthly microcosm, if you will, an earthly representation of God's heavenly dwelling place. Because the cherubim are the, the attendants, the servants of God that are most closely associated with his presence in heaven. And so by the tabernacle, Demonstrate or representing these cherubim, it's intending to communicate that God's presence is here. God's throne is here. He's taking up residence among his people. And these cherubim represent that. Verse 2 says, all the curtains are to be made the same size. 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. So that's about 42 feet. These are large pieces of linen. 42 feet by about six feet, all one piece of linen. And they're all to be the same size, which communicates just uniformity and symmetry design. Verse three says, join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. So you ended up with two sets of five that were attached together which gave you essentially one piece that was 20 by 28 cubits in dimensions. It's a very, very large piece of cloth that would be the result of that. And then verse 4 says, Make loops of blue material along the edge of the end curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set With the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. So, the idea with these loops and with these gold clasps is to take these pieces of material and join it together to where the tabernacle is now one tent. It is now one unit, all connected together. And then verse 7 says that there is going to be another layer on top of this. What's interesting is is you have actually four separate layers of different types of material that go into the, the making of this tent. Now, what's interesting about this passage is it doesn't tell us exactly how these layers are to be applied. Do they just rest over it, kind of like a blanket on top of a blanket, like making a bed, or are they somehow suspended above? It doesn't really specifically tell us, but it does communicate that there are four layers of four different types of material. And as you move outward in those layers of material, apparently it moves to less and less holy in terms of moving away from the presence of God. So the, the inner layer that's clo- most closely associated with the worship of God is made out of linen and, and finely woven linen, colorful linen. Interestingly enough, the priestly garments are also made out of fine linen. In Revelation, in the children of God, they are dressed in fine white linen. And so linen seems to be in Scripture associated with holiness in the presence of God. But then as you move outward from that, you get uh, articles of material that are less precious, if you will, less costly, less holy. So the next layer, verse 7 says, "...make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, eleven altogether. All eleven curtains are to be the same size, thirty cubits long, and four cubits wide." So what's interesting there is it's just a tad bit bigger than the, the 28 cubits by 4 cubits of the linen. And, and probably the idea here is to make sure that the linen is completely covered by this goat here. So it's one cubit extra on each side so that the linen is completely covered. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the most beautiful and ornate parts of the tabernacle were never seen by the Israelites. They were on the inside. On the outside, what they saw were dark animal skins. What the priests saw on the inside coming into the presence of the Lord and especially the high priest once a year coming into the most holy place Inside, in the presence of God, they saw the most beautiful linen, the purple and scarlet and blue linen. They saw the gold articles of furnishing. But the people on the outside, they knew based on the word of God and what Moses had told them, they knew by ear what it was to look like, but they never saw it. It was enclosed within this holy tent. Verse 9 says, join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. Notice the change from gold clasps now to bronze clasps. Why? Because we're moving outward from the central holiness of God. And so again, this was to be connected together through these loops and clasps to form one unit that went over the top of the linen tent. And then verse 12 says, As for the additional length of the tent curtains the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides and what is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of the other durable leather. So verse 14 describes two more layers to the tabernacle But very little information is given as to the dimensions or how this is to be done. And the assumption is either one, God showed Moses the pattern of how this was to be. Or another possibility is that the idea here is that the Hebrews were very familiar with the concept of a multi-layered tent. Because they were already a nomadic people moving from place to place. And so they understood what was meant here by these layers that were to go on top of the tent. And the the most inner part has theological significance, but the further out you go probably serves less of a religious or theological significance and more of a practical purpose, such as protecting the tabernacle from the elements. So you have these animal skins over the top then we have the layers described in verses 1 through 14. And then in verses 15 through 30, we have the structure or the frame of the tabernacle described. So verse 15 says, Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them, two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is the west end or the back end of the tabernacle, And make two frames for the corners at the far end. At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both shall be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. And so this structure has just described the side walls and the back wall of the tabernacle. And again, what's significant is these are not solid walls. These are just frames designed to hold the cloth and the animal skins. It was designed to be carried. It was designed to be lightweight, to be able to be moved from place to place. And so it was just a skeletal structure. And the way of probably a good way of seeing these frames that are described is basically what you have is you have two sticks, two poles made out of acacia wood that are overlaid with gold. And then you have like cross beams that verse 26 and following are going to describe where it almost looks like a ladder. So kind of a ladder-like structure with two sticking down farther below to go into the bases, the silver bases that were made. And so these form kind of the structure, the skeletal frame of the tabernacle. Verse 26 says, Also make crossbars of acacia wood, Five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west, at the far end of the tabernacle. The center crossbar is to extend from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. And then verse 30 significantly says, set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain and we've we've seen this before where apparently god showed moses a true tabernacle he didn't show him blueprints he showed him a tabernacle and according to the author of hebrews what he showed him was a heavenly tabernacle one made without hands and so god is showing moses a heavenly vision of god's dwelling place and he's asking moses to build a A version, a finite version of that, if you will, on earth to be God's dwelling place in the midst of his people. And so Moses is to make a copy, an earthly, finite copy of the heavenly one that God showed him on the mountain. And then the last several verses talk about the curtains that separate the two sections of the tabernacle and also the front curtain, the front opening of the tabernacle. Verse 31 says, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. So exactly just as the inner layer of linen was described in verse 1. But this is for the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Verse 32 says, hang it with gold hooks, on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the ark of the covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Isn't it interesting how the ark is described? That is described as the ark of the covenant law. We know later on that the tablets of stone, the tablets of law were placed inside of this ark. And it shows us the the importance, the centrality of the word of God for his people, doesn't it? That with the presence of God is the word of God. And it is called by that name, the covenant law. Put the atonement cover, the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant law in the most holy place, and that is where the blood of atonement was sprinkled to make atonement for the sins of the people. Then verse 35 says, Place the table, that is the table of the bread of presence, outside of that curtain to the right. As you're going into the tabernacle, it would have been on the right side to the north side of the tabernacle, and the lampstand or the menorah on the left side, on the south side in that room of the temple. And then for the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain, and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and cast five bronze bases for them. Again, what I think is significant in verse 37 is that for the tent entrance, it does not specifically say embroidered cherubim on them. And also the bases are different. They're made out of bronze. Why? Because we're moving now to the outward part of the tabernacle. It is at the barrier between the outer courtyard and where the priest can enter into the holy place. And so there are no cherubim on the entrance and there are bronze bases instead of silver. Why? Because we're moving further away from the presence of God in the inner sanctuary if you will, where the most holy place is. So what, is all, what does this all mean? What is its purpose? What is this passage trying to teach us? What does this teach us about God? I just want to mention just a few points here as we think about what this text is trying to teach us. I think one overriding principle in all of, uh, of this section of Exodus, really beginning in chapter 24 all the way through the end of the book, one of the overriding themes is that the Lord is present and he is at home among his people. The Lord is present and he is at home among his people. Exodus 25 verse eight says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. one of the purposes of this sanctuary is to be a home for God in the midst of his people. Now in one sense, we could say, there's no way that this little tent can hold God, right? And there, and that's true, that God is infinite. His presence is everywhere. But there is a special sense in, in which God's presence is there in the midst of His people. His glory is there. His name is there in the midst of His people. Exodus chapter 29, verse 44 says, So I will consecrate the tent of meeting, And the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. You see that theme run through all throughout this whole section of Exodus that God desires to dwell in the midst of his people. But this is a portable home for God, isn't it? This is a portable home for God. It's moving from place to place as God guides them through the wilderness. We see later on in the the days of David, in the days of Solomon, where David says, here I am dwelling in this nice palace, but the Lord dwells in a tent. And David mourned over that. He said, God deserves something better. God deserves a temple. He deserves a a more permanent home that, that signifies how great he is. And the Lord allowed that temple, that permanent home to be built in Jerusalem. But he said to David, you're not going to build it because you're a king of war. Your son will build it. But David supplied all the materials and then Solomon built it. Solomon built this temple and he recognized that it was a place of dwelling for God. But he also understood that God's presence is everywhere. That there's a sense in which God can't be contained in one place. Even though the temple is so much grander and bigger than the tabernacle ever was, yet even so, it can't really hold God. But God's presence is there with his people. He wants to dwell among them. But even the temple in Jerusalem, as ornate and as beautiful as it was, still wasn't permanent, was it? Because it's no longer there. It's been destroyed. It's been destroyed more than once. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. It was rebuilt about 70 years, 80 years later. And then it was destroyed again after the days of Jesus in AD 70 by the Romans. And it has never stood since in almost 2000 years. But what is the, what do the scriptures teach us about the presence of God? Jesus has come, hasn't he? Jesus has come to tabernacle among us, John 1, 14. Jesus has come. And then that even points us to a, a higher future reality about God dwelling with his people. In Revelation 21, verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This tabernacle points to a higher future reality. One in Christ, but then even beyond that to a new heavens and a new earth that Christ purchased for us that one day we will live in and we will dwell in God's presence and he in the midst of us. And so this passage teaches us that the Lord is present. He's at home among his people. But this passage also teaches us that the Lord is creator, who designs with order and with wisdom. Isn't it interesting how intricate the details that are given in this? It's pretty orderly, isn't it? Measurements, the, how to build it, the design of it, the beauty of it. All these things are to be the same size, the symmetry and the orderliness of it. It speaks to God's wisdom and his orderliness, that God brings order into a chaotic world. And so God is the God of creation. He is the one who designs and builds and makes things. I want to read to you just a little bit from one of the commentaries that I read about this. He says, This brings us to a matter of great importance for understanding the meaning of the tabernacle. He says the precise measurements of the structure combined with the symbolism of the curtains and the furnishings are not without deep significance. The tabernacle seems to represent a microcosm of creation itself. The splendor and beauty of the materials used... Fine fabrics, precious metals, and stones affirm the goodness of the created world. The precise and perfect dimensions of the tabernacle indicate a sense of order amid chaos. To think of the tabernacle as an act of cosmic recreation is precisely what the building of the tabernacle originally intended to convey. In the midst of a fallen world, in exile from the Garden of Eden, the original heaven on earth, God undertakes another act of creation, a building project that is nothing less than a return to pre-fall splendor. The tabernacle, therefore, is laden with redemptive significance, not just because of the sacrifices and offerings within its walls, but simply because of what it is, a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. And so he says this is like God bringing a new creation into existence, and he is there to dwell. And what's fascinating is there are some themes here, some phrases that remind us of Genesis chapter 3, such as when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim there to guard the entrance, didn't he? To keep them out of the garden, to keep them away from the tree of life. The last one also in thinking about goat skins, sheep skins covering this tabernacle reminds me of the fact that God covered Adam and Eve with animal skins to cover them and to to cover their shame. But the Lord is a creator, and this shows his order and his wisdom, his design. Thirdly, I think this passage teaches us that the Lord is holy. And his glorious presence is set apart from sinful people, only to be mediated by priests and by sacrifice. One of the things that is striking about this passage and the way that this tabernacle is designed is even though God is present among his people, there are barriers, aren't there? There are barriers. So you have the camp of the Israelites, Around this tabernacle in the center, but then you have an outer courtyard, don't you? You have an outer courtyard, and only some are able to pass inside that outer courtyard. And then you have a place where only the priests are able to go inside the holy place. And then you have, even within that, behind a veil, behind a curtain, another barrier where the high priest could go only once a year on the day of atonement. It speaks to the holiness of God, doesn't it? That even though God is present among his people, he is still set apart from his people. And in order to commune with this holy God, there is sacrifice of atonement that must be made. I'm thankful that that barrier, that veil has been torn down, hasn't it? Matthew records for us that when Jesus hung on the cross, that the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was ripped into, signifying the fact that these barriers have now come down. We don't, longer, we don't no longer need animal sacrifices. We don't need a Levitical priesthood. We don't need Aaron, the high priest, and his sons to mediate for us. We have Christ, and in Christ, we are welcomed into the holy presence of God. That is incredible, isn't it? When you think about the barriers that were set up for the Old Testament Israelites that they could not cross, and now we are welcomed through Christ into his most holy presence. The Lord is holy. I think this passage also reveals to us just the way that this is designed. It reveals to us that the Lord is king. He's a king, and he is worthy of honor and allegiance. There are aspects of royalty built into this, aren't there? Aspects of royalty. When you see the layers that are done, especially the purple and the blue and the scarlet, and you see the gold materials that are used, it it symbolizes royalty. It symbolizes importance. It symbolizes that this is a home, but no ordinary home. This is the palace of a king who has come to dwell in the midst of his people. And I think the last thing that this teaches us is that the Lord is God and he is to be worshipped and adored by his people. The Lord is God and he is to be worshipped and adored by his people. So I would encourage you, the next time you read through this passage or read through a similar passage like this, don't dwell on the measurements of 28 by 4 by 30 by 10 or this is made out of this and made out of that. But focus on what is significant in the passage. Focus on what, what, these, what, these, what this design is teaching us about who God is. Notice how the, the, the design changes from the inner sanctuary in the most holy place the further outward you go. And shows us the holiness and the significance of God's presence in the midst of his people. But this teaches us many things about God. It teaches us that we have a holy God who is the creator, who is the king of the universe, and he delights in dwelling in the midst of his people. And he delights in having his people come and worship and adore him. And we have the privilege to do that through Christ. And one day we will have the privilege to do that for all of eternity in his very glorious presence. I'm looking forward to that day, and I hope you are as well. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we thank you that you have come down to us in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through him we might have access to your holy presence. Lord, remind us that you are holy. Remind us that you are to be feared, that you are are to be reverenced and adored, Remind us of your wisdom and the orderliness of your design in the way that you have created the world. Remind us of your great plan in the way that you are weaving this theme of your presence throughout all of Scripture. From the Garden of Eden, through the tabernacle, the temple, through Christ, all the way to a new heavens and a new earth when we will dwell with you. Lord, remind us that you are our great King. And you are worthy of our obedience. Remind us that you're our God and you're worthy of our worship and praise. Lord, help us to live in light of your presence and looking forward to your the return of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for what you have done for your people long ago. Thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.